This is JU Israel Teachers Lounge, where we reach out to current Gap Year students, alumni, and any interested listeners, keeping you connected to what's happening in Israel and giving you insight behind the headlines. I'm your host, Michael Unterberg, a senior Israel educator at JU Israel, here with, as always, co-host Alan Goldman. How's it going, Alan? It's going well, Mike. Alan's the director of JU Israel. And this week we have back Matt Littman, Israel educator and producer of our podcast. How's it going, Matt? As always, it is a pleasure to be here. It's going well. Okay, we'll talk as quickly as we possibly can because Matt has to leave a little bit early. (laughs) So we'll talk at double speed. And if you set your podcast at like one and a half, two times speed, we'll get in more before Matt has to leave. (laughs) Now, why does Matt have to leave? Matt has to go and teach at Ovok Israel. So this is really the teacher's lounge between classes, running between classes here. Mike was at uh, Evo this morning. I'll be later today at uh, YTVA. Yeah, it's truth and, in advertising, you know, so. man. We, we call it like it is. It's yeah. the truth. Now, last week we discussed what anniversary? I can't remember the number. Uh, last week was the 45th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. 45th or the anniversary. October War. Right. And this week we will be discussing the Camp David Peace Accords, and this is the? 40th. 40th. So this is a zero anniversary, not a five. Yes. Correct. Yes. That's pretty good. Yep. And what we'll be discussing today is, and this is our three-part series, next week we will deal with the Oslo process. Uh, What we're dealing with is now what those events were, what happened, but more importantly, how they shape the Israel of today, why they are still relevant. Alan, can you give us just some brief introductory notes about what happened at the Camp David peace between Israel and Egypt? Uh, well, actually, it was Camp David Accords where it was really, the again, a framework, a way to reach a peace where they actually um, – where Egypt and Israel in a bilateral agreement that was uh, um, med- uh, mediated by President Carter from the U.S. Um, came to a peace agreement where up until that point, it was always seen as a multilateral Track meaning Israel was going to make peace with all the different Arab countries involved, um, you know, with the Arab League, the Arab countries, and other than that, that wasn't going to happen. Well, no the Arab nation states all agreed that they would work in lockstep. That right. is, no one Arab state could make peace with Israel. All had to agree to this shared policy of no recognition, right. no negotiation. No peace. Right. And and even Sadat going into these uh, negotiations at the Camp David Accords and coming to Israel, which we'll talk a little bit about, I'm sure, as we go on, um, Sadat saw himself as sort of leading the other Arab nations um, and sort of sparking the multilateral. But, well, of course, once it got down into the depths of it, it just became a bilateral agreement. Can you go back to it sort of like a story? Because yeah. it's really Sadat who we talked about last week initiating the most devastating yeah. blow any nation state took against Israel. This week, we're going to talk about him as the person who initiated the Israeli-Egyptian peace talks. Which uh, many, and as we said even last week, many really saw his plan in 1973 at the Yom Kippur War was to uh, really start a peace process, which there was a stale in negotiations. Was there a bilateral? Was Israel, where was Israel? What was happening? So, Well, his generals were also telling him, "Let's let's take back the Sinai, and he gave them their best shot. And after 73, they say, we just can't. Right, but even the plan to take over the Sinai was really not to take over the full Sinai, and then that, that kind of, uh, what do you what do you say? It kind of changed during the middle of the war. But the but the issue was that there was a mindset in Sadat that after the Yom Kippur War, 
there was going to be negotiations and that that would break the political stalemate. And that already does happen right after the war with Kissinger. And the main really track in all of this is I think that this is the brilliance of Sadat, which I think – I, I think you can say it this way. Well, hold on, hold on. Well, Stop. You're, you're being a professor. Can you tell me a story? <laughs> I am trying to tell you the story. So start it. Does it I'm trying to tell so you I story. would just like to use a colloquialism. One of the things that I read here was that uh, that Sadat basically decided to give the bearer a poke in the backside. That was what 73 was about in order to like provoke the bear, i.e. Israel, um, knowing that he wasn't going to be entirely victorious. I mean, I know the Egyptians present it as a victorious war, but... They still finished the war without the Sinai, which was what their the basic goal was. Um, but it also made Israel think about what should be happening going forward. Um, right. I mean, that's a strange narrative because right. Israel had genuinely offered peace to any and all Arab nations. And Right. But look, there was there was this, there was definitely a stalemate with Israel. That was a, the talk of what was a peace, what was not a peace. Was it? But but in general, I think, and I think this is that I do really this is where the story begins. You're asking for a story. I really do believe this is where the story begins. And I think this is the greatness was of Sadat. I think was his turn towards the United States. All of this is really in the context of the of the Cold War, and where you have uh, America versus or the West and NATO versus the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. And who, who was the big daddy? And I think Sadat realized that the Soviet Union's days were numbered. They were just not as strong as America. And he starts making his overtures to America. And, and America made it very clear. Part of coming close to America was making peace with Israel. And that sort of brings us to the 70s. That brings us through the 70s until um, in this kind of stalemate that even, again, happens politically. Sadat in 1977 makes a tremendous overture saying, I'll even go to the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, and speak to the Israeli people. Now, he doesn't call the prime minister of Israel. No. He makes a public announcement. He makes a public statement in a speech in front of his parliament where he gets a, a rousing applause, which it's it was like clear. Nobody even really understood what he was saying in, in, in many facets. Um, but that opens the door and Begin says, okay. You know, Begin makes it clear in another speech, again, not speaking to Sadat, he invites him uh, in another speech um, to come to Israel. Why isn't it just a direct direct communication between the two men? Why did it start of them giving speeches where they each acknowledge they're ready to take a step? um, It's a funny way to start a conversation, isn't it? Well, I think that comes down to part of this no recognition. If you can't recognize the other side, to reach out to them suggests recognition. So this way, instead of putting things directly to someone by doing it indirectly or through a third person um, or putting it in the public sphere as opposed to directly. It, I mean, it's the middle school equivalent. In a middle school, that would be, can you ask Can you ask Jimmy if he likes me? Because I want to ask him out. Because if I, I know he likes me, but I don't know if he likes me, likes me. And I think, uh, you know, that's sort of the international political, they make the announcement mm-hmm. to see, they run it up the flagpole to see who's going to salute. Without starting a direct negotiation, they can say, well, it was just an offer in the air, right? And it's also it's also public. It's a big public declaration, so it creates it creates a drama in and of itself. And in the context of this, there were back back room negotiations right. going on, talks again with America, without America. It also creates a certain amount of pressure on the other side, mm-hmm. um, which I think is important to to recognize. If you think about the Israeli side, for example, who initiated, who was involved at the beginning of all this process from the Israeli side, it wasn't Begin. It was Rabin. And then afterwards, Bacon comes in. So the question is, well, what's he going to do now? Is he going to continue on this path? And in a way, so that I, didn't, I wouldn't want to say pushed him into a corner, 
but he definitely put the pressure on him to respond uh, and to continue along that it's path. It's very interesting because as we're going to talk next week about Oslo, that public-private, you know, the public puts the pressure, but the private is where the real work gets done without being shot at in quiet. That tension is very hard to balance because that yeah. can work in your advantage or it could blow up in your face. Well, absolutely. And it, it, it <coughs> it's all part of the world of diplomacy. Alan is smoking an enormous yeah. cigar right now as we're talking, and that's what you're hearing. <laughs> oh, I wish. Um, Mike's about uh, to pour me a big glass of single malt. Thank you very much. Yeah, right. Uh, so what happens is is Sadat comes to Israel <laughs> that, you know, on a big plane. Yeah, Bacon says, come on in. And he, <clears throat> it's an Egyptian flight. Yeah, it's landing an Egyptian. at an Israeli airport. Airport, And, there were, I mean, they had sharpshooters. Right, Israel snipers. They were afraid that maybe this was there. Were, there was in the in the defense establishment. They thought that this could be a trick, and it was a suicide uh, squad that was going to come out and get rid of the uh, Israeli government that was waiting on the tarmac for him. And of course, the drama of the door opens, and Sadat walks out. And, Do you remember this uh, on television? I remember more the the agree the signing of the peace agreement. Uh huh. I also yeah. Uh, well, this. that I feel like was more during the day. For some reason, I remember it the was later. during the day. Yeah. I remember the landing at home, watch it, not in school. And, uh, I don't remember the land. I, again, I, those images are mixed yeah, yeah. up with. Well, I, also, when you're but... when you're not, you know, when you're around ten years old, you don't have a full perspective on it, but you see how excited the adults are. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, well, as I said last week in my school, we had a big assembly on the mm-hmm. signing of it, mm-hmm. not when it came. So, so he comes to Israeli's parliament. The uh, Sadat speaks, and it's very vibrant. And his speech is. An affront. <laughs> I mean, it's a very harsh speech, which basically says we want everything back. We want to go back to sixty-seven pre-sixty-seven lines, mm-hmm. and the Israelis are are like flabbergasted. Like th- this is like not even in the in, in the makings, mm-hmm. right? Like w- w- what's going on? This here? doesn't feel like diplomacy. Yeah, and there's no warmth. <laughs> there's no warmth with Begin or anything. And so whatever they have official dinners after the what was it? How many hours was it? Maybe thirty-six hours. You know, and some talks and some official dinners, and this it, it kind of broke the ice. There was enough there to break the ice that Carter could get them into. Why do you uh, think uh, he Camp came out David. swinging like that, uh, Sadat? Well, first of all, he was under tremendous pressure from the the Arab world. It, this was what had happened when we said where the stalemate is that Carter had been trying to pull together a regional peace conference, and that failed. So Sadat was breaking that that stalemate, as we said. And um, he was under tremendous pressure from the Arab League, who was uh, still under, as Matt said, the 1967 um, no three no's, no negotiations, no recognition, no peace. So he ha- he had to come out strong and particularly strong in terms of the Palestinians. I would he say also domestically he has a lot of pressure, yes, not just correct. around the Arab world, but in Egypt also. He's already taking a step uh, across a line that was drawn. Right. So he's showing, yeah, but I still get it, guys. Right. But the, the interesting I, thing I, that you mentioned about the um, the aggressive nature, and I think you used the expression coming out swinging, of of, uh, of his speech. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm from the United States. Uh, to a British person, he's he's uh, his cricket bat is doing a wicked googly. Is that? Perfect. Okay. Um, but to my, when you read Bag- the text of Begin's speech, it's it's very reconciliatory. Yeah. It's very like let's be friends, let's try and make this work together. So it's a very interesting contrast what the two men when they began like that meeting in the Knesset or that public forum, how they presented it to their 
Well, domestically, I, I there's a lot of wariness as Begin as the as the staunch right winger. Is he really going to go at this sincerely? And to he's remember, they're not just speaking to each other; they're speaking to large well, audiences. Yeah. And Begin has to show both Sadat that he's he's actually practicing what we think of as diplomacy, but he's also telling the Israeli voter, "I'm sincere. Like this is yep. how I really perceive it." And we also have to remember, in hindsight, we can see that, in fact, Sadat was assassinated for this. So yeah. he's got, you know, he is under pr- tremendous amount of It's a of bold move. Pressure. It's a very bold move. Um, Why and, is he doing it? And by the way, I just want to put out what he puts for the Palestinians. He says it has to be a Palestinian state, right? It and, is a primary and, you know, goal as, e- as e- equally as important as getting back to Sinai for Egypt and Arab land, is establishing a state for the Palestinian people. At the beginning, Sadat is very clear that he is here representing not just Egyptian selfish interests, but absolute self-rule for a Palestinian and and getting the Golan back for the Syrians. And it's a sine qua non, he says. Yeah, he says says that without it, there's nothing to talk There's about. There's nothing to talk about. We can't sign a peace so, treaty. And, and in talking about Jerusalem. So the, and you're sitting there in the apartment. You're saying this guy's talking about taking Jerusalem back. And it's 10 years after two wars that you've won. Mm-hmm. Right? There's different narrative, right? And you're like, okay, well, like, is, uh, what's going on here? But it's also interesting because the Palestinians, as far as I recall, weren't really involved in, in this process. They had no seat at, at, at the table at all. Nobody so did. he's coming and he's making demands on behalf of the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Because he's got this pressure from the Arab League and he's got pressure domestically and all these things, but maybe he means it. Right, somewhere. but he hasn't really got any input from the people who he's who he's talking about. Who to he's be fair, to well, at that time, no, yes yeah, so no. I mean, where he meets would you with go Assad for? Yeah. He meets with Assad before he comes to Israel. Okay, but what about the PLO? Um, the PLO at that point is really a radical terrorist organization, which is which is causing civil war in Lebanon, mm-hmm. which had been massacred by the Jordanians. They're in a. They're, it's and really weird for him to treat the the PLO as a clean representative of the Palestinian people. But also people. the fact that he's trying to represent them without their <laughs> without the Haskama. Of whom they don't have an official no, leadership. Right, they have a terrorist organization which is claiming to fight. In but their don't names. forget that Egypt's more or less set up the PLO. They okay. were the original founders. Right, but I'm saying the but, fact that he's coming in and saying this is what we want for the Palestinians, but the Palestinians aren't themselves involved in that conversation. How would you involve them? You're asking me, or you're making I'm, a, a in 1977? Question? No, I'm asking. There's, the, it's easier said than done to involve the Palestinian, quote unquote, leadership yeah. when they are at that point. It, the people claiming leadership without being chosen by the people are the people killing Israelis and non-Israelis around the world. Right. And what would that do to the to Sadat's ability to sit at a table with Menachem Begin and negotiate if Yasser Arafat? In, in in full, you know, terrorist leader mode is sitting there with him. Right. It's a no go. So, your point is entirely valid, but there's there's actual, it, it's it's logistical, and of, and of course, spoiler alert, as the process plays out, he he doesn't really care that much about the Palestinians. Well, that's the other thing I was going to say. Yeah, so, one, one part of the deal is binding. The part that relates to the the Sinai and all that sort of stuff, and the part that relates to what he was asking for for the Palestinians. Nothing really came as a result of it. Yeah, but I, w- I wouldn't treat him too harshly with that. I wouldn't say that he doesn't care because if we go back to the timeline, so after the this dramatic meeting, so um, nothing like it gets stalemated again in the in the back rooms mm-hmm. of diplomacy. Exactly for this reason, because what what can what can the Egyptians or Sadat give up, and what can Begin? And it really comes down to, in a lot of ways. Um, uh, Begin having a 
strong commitment to settlements, not only in the Yehuda Shomron, not only the Golan, but also in the Sinai. There are four settlements in the Sinai, the biggest of which is Yamit. I think something like 5,000 people or something like that. That's the big one. The serious side settlement. Also um, a commitment to not have a Palestinian state under any circumstances. Right. Correct. You know, it, it definitely a greater Israel vision. Like if we look at Begin, he's coming from Jabotinsky. Um, and it, there is this greater Israel um, uh, sort of vision even though, interestingly enough, Jabotinsky, sort of an interesting historical note, in 1919, when they were like fighting over the the, the finger of the Galilee, the four Yishuvim up there, um, Jabotinsky said, "Withdraw." And Ben Gurion said, "We don't we don't withdraw from any settlement ever." Mm-hmm. So you can see how things have flipped um, historically. Well, but Be- Begin is influenced by the ideology of Jabotinsky. He is not a clone of Jabotinsky. Absolutely, Jabotinsky exactly. was was more militant than Ben-Gurion and in many ways more of what we think of as right wing, but he was deeply liberal and believed in enlightenment values in a way that in some ways more than Ben-Gurion. So right. it's a complicated – they're, they're, Jabotinsky is a very complicated man and Begin as his student is a complicated man. They didn't always see eye to eye. Right. They had a huge fight. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so and so, I think Begin has, and I think part of that not seeing eye to eye. You could correct me if I'm wrong. Is a sort of a more religious streak running in Begin, and a more, you know, sort of more traditional connection in that sense. To my fa- my, the land, they, it, the greater it, land of Israel. When Begin wins the vote in, in that in that political revolution here in Israel, and the reporter on television puts the microphone in his face and says, "What will be your style as prime minister?" And he says, "Signon Yehuditov." <laughs> nice Jewish prime minister. He has there are certain ways that he is a, a complicated thinker, and there are certain ways that he has this holistic simplicity. That I'm just saying, it, it's just it, it, it's very simple to me. The Jews, we've been victims for too long. We're reclaiming our land. It's very simple. We get it. Right, and that's and, how they and, walk and, in. And, and the word they always use for him, like the Americans, when the Americans get in, is intransigent. You just can't right. move him on certain things. Right. So the Egyptians and the Israelis both have these and, right, red the, lines that won't they won't cross. And they won't budge. And that budge really comes down to how much is Israel going to give up territorial, territorially, including settlements. And the Egyptians is how much are they going to give up demanding mm-hmm. in terms of territory. Um, and that brings us to the point where Carter decides to call him to Camp David, the presidential resort. I don't know what it is. What do you call it? Retreat. 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 Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. The presidential retreat where um, they basically say, okay, in 12 days or something like that, we're going to solve this. <laughs> I mean, it sounds very much like it's a model that presidents have taken after that, right? Who said, "Am I for even tri- President Trump now? By the end of my first term, I'm going to come up with a plan. It's going to plan everything. But it well, was, it isn't. Uh, it isn't. You're right that other presidents pull this idea of we'll come and we'll I'll help you. The difference is very often it's a president. Bush did it. Obama did it. Trump is kind of doing it, where you summon the parties to an American supervised negotiation is different than the Israelis and the Egyptians were hashing it out and at stalemate, and the American president says. Let me be a third party to help you guys out in a process you're already engaged in. That's right. a crucial difference that you don't always see with other presidents. Okay. And I think I think that's a sign of failure. When, when the president we'll says, talk about I, that in Oslo, I guess, and then more in Oslo. You know, it's funny because in Oslo there was background also. So yeah. in a way it's more similar to the Egyptian model that right. the Israelis and the Palestinians were working on things. And, you know, Clinton says, 
Well, let me see if I can help. Right. Anyway, so uh, so we'll go back to this. So they come to Camp David, and they're hoping in this in this uh, right this very um, uh, pastoral setting they'll be able to break the stalemate. And because one of the clear things is there's no love loss. Begin is a tough guy. And he's a tough negotiator. And there's no like this coochie coochie woochie that you hear later years. There was no what? Robbie. I'm not a political science guy. So what was that term? <laughs> that's an official term. That's uh, you obviously, you know. I don't speak Latin. To, you obviously went to YU. You didn't learn these kinds of no, things. Coochie uchi no. woochie. Uh-huh. Uh, was that the direct quote? Which is, you know. No, you pronounced it wrong. <laughs> I <laughs> Uh, see, I just made it up now. I've coined the term. I'm patenting it. It's my term. I'm owning it. I think most um, people might use the term, I don't know, touchy-feely. Lovey-dovey, lovey, maybe? It's overused. Okay, okay. They're overused. Woo-woo. Yeah. <laughs> what? what? Woo-woo. 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 Oh, now it's getting one. a little creepy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Says Ben, the bass player, give a little like Barry White yeah, mood music. Exactly. Yeah, go ahead. So uh, basically, um, it, it's not going well. Can I tell a story? Sure. There's a little anecdote that I... I know which one it is. Which one? The chess. Nachon. Go for it. I love that story. I know you do. That uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski told, he was Carter's head of the NSA. And he... Uh, he's helping run the... He's this... By the way, what I understand, I wonder if they spoke in Polish, because they're both Polish. Both Begin and Zbrzezinski are are Polish. They might have. I don't know. Brzezinski. Yeah. That's interesting. Especially if they didn't want... The other side to understand. Yeah. What <laughs> I, nobody noticed. I, nobody's, nobody's like made a note on that, but I, I don't know. I, I never, yeah. No, because you do want a certain amount of these retreats, a certain yeah. amount of we're not sitting at the table. It's just social lubrication right. of the process, the human element, and balancing that into these negotiations. It's not, you know, Spock and Vulcans. It's yeah. not computers. These are human beings. And if you can break the ice, it, it influences the dynamics. So afterwards, years afterwards, like in the 90s, I saw an interview with Brzezinski, and he said he offered Begin. He said, oh, I've heard you, you're you good at chess. I also enjoy chess. Would you like to play a game? And he said Begin's face went, like, very serious. He said, I used to love chess very much, but when I was a prisoner in a Soviet gulag, my interrogator used to play chess with me to intimidate me while he interrogated me, and I beat him every time. But because of that, I lost my enjoyment of the game. I haven't played in decades. So Brzezinski says, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize it. Biggest says, no, for you, let's sit down and play a game. And Brzezinski's like, oh, my gosh, what did I get myself into? Like, I feel bad. Maybe I should let him win. I don't even. And then they were sitting and playing chess, and Eliza, Menachem Bacon's wife, walks by and says, Oh, you're playing chess? Menachem loves to play chess. He always plays chess with everybody he can. I'm so happy he finally, you know, he found somebody here in America who's willing to play with him. And Brzezinski said, that's when I realized who I was dealing with. He wasn't just playing chess as a game. He was the whole That was a chess move. The whole thing that is was a chess in his move. in his head he's playing chess the whole time. Yeah. Right. And so and uh, What did he say to his wife? You let, the, <laughs> yeah. you let the cat out of the bag? What are you doing? He yeah, probably, I think they, yeah. He I think, probably just smiled because then he knew. They both knew that was a chess move. They laughed. I mean, Brzezinski laughed in telling this story when I saw the interview. So it was an amusing anecdote. But but he do, he did say it gave me real insight into Begin and who I was dealing with. And the, the critical moment comes again. We said, because this is the critical moment, and, and it's when Sadat um, – packs his bags to leave. Mm-hmm. He's like, done. There's no moving this guy. If we're not, if they're not giving up on settlements, if they're not giving up on any, you know, then then we're done. And and Sadat's ready to pack his bags. And 
Carter catches him on the porch and basically says, okay, you're, you're walking out on the United States here. Meaning you're breaking. I brought you. This is my. This is my. Um, my. Uh, my honor. You're, you, you know. You're, you're, you're breaking me. it. And now we know that Sadat. His whole move. This whole move was to get close to the United States, to get the the aid they need, to get the military support. It's funny. I think people from the United States don't realize what it means to a smaller country to align with the right superpower. It's yeah. still an issue today. Which which major power are you going to align with? But during the Cold War, it was. Yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah, for everything, it was a it was a major move. So Sadat says okay, and he he he's now willing to negotiate, and that's the move when he basically is willing to give up on the Palestinians. That's the point where he realizes he's got to he's got to give he's got to give up Palestinians. But he's now they've got the other side to deal with the Begin side. The Begin side is what are you going to do about settlements? Begin has basically sworn an oath. <laughs> which is critical to him, that he's not going to give up on any settlements. And that includes the settlements in Sinai. Um, and basically, they do a, a nice Jewish Talmudic runaround, which is, I, I forget whose idea it was. I think it was Weitzman's idea, who was um, the defense minister, I believe, at the time. Um, Ezer. Ezer Weizman, who had been the head of the, the Air Force and then was the president of Israel for 10 years. Um and the son, the son of Chaim Weitzman, right? Um, and uh, he um, he basically they basically came up with this idea that a- any kind of deal has to be ratified by the Knesset. The way Israel's politics work, the the the, the foreign policy is not in the preview of the prime minister himself because there's no separation between the executive executive and the legislature. legislature. So the legislature has to decide anything. So they basically come around and say to Bacon, well, what if the legislature decides that we're going to uproot the settlements in the Sinai? It's not your decision. The legislature is deciding it. And you can still hold to your oath. uh, um, (coughs) Excuse me. I'm getting worked up by this. Uh, You can still – you can hold by your oath and that's how they get out of it. Begin agrees to it. And Sadat gets out of his pledge for the Palestinians by there being a clause about autonomy. autonomy. Exactly. And within five years of negotiations. Right. So they, you know, and a path towards autonomy. So they both, it is is sort of Talmudic. They both find these loopholes that allow them to bend close enough to each other that they can sign something. Absolutely. Well, an interesting thing in all of this is that up until very recently, until recent documents have been released and things like that, uh, nobody understood really what Carter's position was. But Carter's position has come clear. Um, Ken Stein talks about this, and you can see it on his website. He brings the documents that Carter's goal was to get a Palestinian state. Mm-hmm. That was like a bottom line. He was way aligned with the Egyptians. Um, but, you know, he— I think that was pretty—I mean, look, in the perception of people at the time in the Jewish community— and I don't know how Arabs saw Carter's role. The Jewish community, the pro-Israel community, really saw Carter as not being a fair arbitrator. They saw him with his finger on the side of Sadat. There was, like you're saying, the Israeli military had sharpshooters at the plane in case it was a trick. Yeah. I, re- I remember distinctly the distrust that Sadat is playing us. And and that Carter is enabling him. I remember people pointing out, do you see this picture? So this is where our, our upbringing, our schooling is is really different. So we have to be sure, careful. We were raised in Jewish different environments. This, right? I went to the liberal Akiba, pluralistic, super liberal people. That this was like the highlight. Yep. Total trust, amazing, right? Also pro-Israel, very pro-Israel, but saw did not see it as 
as a really as no Xavier. concern. I don't remember it wow. being. I remember people. I mean, uh, Lefech, Lefech, I, think. I remember people showing uh, a particular outfit that Sadat was wearing at Camp David. His tie had a geometric pattern, and if you looked at it, it was interlocking what is could be interpreted as swastikas. And I remember people saying, "You see, he, he's signaling back we, home." We sat in my school. We would sit on the floor in a circle and sing, "We will overcome." That's the kind of school I went to. So There's nothing that was going to go towards peace. So it was very, very You're different. You're saying we shall overcome about this? No, I'm saying that's the kind of yeah, school yeah. I went to. So, well, so anything that was talking peace, you know. Right. I'm, I'm wondering how much so that whole thing with Carter and his perspective and his position is now seen through the lens of uh, retro, whatever you call it. Like, Well, hindsight. now that we have the details, we see that right, those who were suspicious like, of Carter were right, right. But also in terms of the way that Carter's come out. But not so not. In, in, in the last few years <laughs> no. as well, and is very much known now as being a very fierce critic of Israel and things like that, and the way that they relate to the Palestinians. I wonder how much of that we now build together to create this picture and how much of it at the time was sort of... I, I mean, I see it as confirmation of something okay. that we saw that he's been much more explicit over the years about. No, so, I mean, Ken Stein himself was a, was ran the Carter Center and he left once this became exposed yeah. a few years ago. Um, but let's, let's we, a few minutes less, let's talk okay. about ramifications. I, I'm going to go to Advak ah. and teach. Have a good class. Good Thank luck. You. Okay, guys. Let's talk about ramifications. Go. So what are the ramifications of 1978, the, the, the peace accord? Well, first of all, we have to remember, again, Egypt as a leader in, right. the, in the world. It's um, not just peace at it, the southern border. Yeah, you're talking about they have 80, something like 83 million or something like that citizens. They're the biggest Arab country population-wise, not the richest. They have obviously problems um, economic. That's why they're turning to America. But it is a big statement. Um, and it's, it means if there's, if there's real peace, we're talking back in 78, 79, you have now cut off a major, major problem. And we see that because in the last 40 years since that moment, there has not been an, an invasion of Israel by an Arab country. We've had wars with non-state players, PLO, Hamas, Hezbollah, and who are backed by state players, but we have not had a full-scale Israeli uh, I mean, security-wise, that's an amazing – you cannot huge, underplay huge. how important it is that our southern border is essentially a, 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 a cold ally but an ally. Right. The Egyptian military does not want another war with Israel, and the Egyptian military to a certain extent runs Egypt. Right, what people often miss is, well, it's cold. They don't love us. Oh, they don't love us. We don't love them either, let's say. But we even have to realize that when e Egypt in the last seven years went through massive changes in terms of even having a Muslim Brotherhood leader for a year and a half, the peace held. Uh, they, they e even, even the exchange of embassies. Yeah. Nobody was called back. Nobody left. It's they didn't staying. openly challenge the terms of the peace agreement. They no. complained about it as being problematic, right. but they stayed within that. They, I mean, it was only a year. Still. But people still, were worried if they held on longer. So, no, but, but that just shows you how deeply embedded all those people who I remember uh, who were super suspicious. It wasn't a raising the atra of the Muslim Brotherhood to stop the police. Peace it was with not Israel. essential. And it was not. So you could see that it was, it's an accepted. And they understood the army's perspective that this is not a war we are willing to have. And they, they, yeah. they accepted that essentially. Yeah. That the suspicion that we had that this was a setup was untrue. Just. I think the suspicions about Carter were true, but the suspicions about Sadat were not true. That this no. is in, this is in. If you want to know how somebody's going to behave, it isn't sufficient to think what you think is in their interest. What is in their perceived self-interest, whether they're right or wrong? And Sadat and the Egyptians thought and continue to think that peace with Israel is in their perceived yeah. self-interest. They, they they made a decisive 
change and decision at that Camp David in the 70s. Um, and it held also the assassination of Sadat, which was 81 or 82. And when Mubarak came in, you know, who knew it was going to keep, you know, here's a new guy coming in. The guy who was assassinated <laughs> from the radical Islamic right, you know, who maybe would change. But no, it, it held. So that that is, as we say, major, major ramification that will lead. We'll talk about next week when we talk about Oslo and Jordan, well, the ability for Jordan and the ability for Oslo to happen. Right. You can't talk about I don't know if you'd have now. Oslo or not, but I do know this, that we perceive reality as what's happened so far. Well, that you know, I have students often tell me this will never happen, that will never happen yeah. because that's not what they see around them. And, you know, I remember in the 80s people talking about the Soviet Union that would last a thousand years. Right. Until something happens – it's impossible. And then once it happens, it's obvious we all knew that was going to happen. Right. Uh, By the uh, way, so that's one big lesson, right? That's a that's, huge that lesson. That in itself is a huge that, lesson. That's a huge lesson. You don't and, uh, Yeah, go ahead. Right? Don't make assumptions. Those make right. assumptions the way things are today, they can't change for the good. Right. right? They can't change for the positive and breakthroughs can't happen. Um, and so that changing that changed the whole what could be. Yeah. The whole what could be. And I you know, everybody was talking about, well, is land for peace an appropriate uh, political move. Like, does land for peace make sense for Israel? Do you offer land for peace? Shouldn't you make peace and then discuss the land? That was the big debate politically, but it created it as a reality. The offer that Israel made after 67, yeah. the land conquered in 67, is available for return if you stop the conflict. Uh, Sadat took them up on it, and they proved that they were telling the truth, making what was for everyone an impossible hypothetical into an actual reality. Yeah, and that's uh, that was of course that was uh, enshrined really in the UN in that two four two resolution mm -hmm. of of uh, trading land for peace essentially. Two four two is the resolution after nineteen sixty seven where the Security Council demanded two things. One of them was that Israel withdraw from all land conquered in 67. No, no that no. withdraw from, from land, land conquered. It didn't say all. Oh, <laughs> right, sorry. And that all states in the region recognize each other with meaningful, secure borders. Right. And Israel has – people often accuse Israel of illegally holding on to the Golan and the West Bank and then Sinai. And Israel said, once the second part works, that our neighbors recognize our borders, we'll withdraw. Right. And Egypt called them on it and Israel – did it. And Israel did it. And Israel did it. And it got to that. And that, and that really has to be the Do you remember Yamit? Pattern. Do you remember the Oh Yamit, I remember big time when they that when when Israel and that's another ramification that Israel not only showed that it was willing to make peace, it showed it was willing to uproot settlements. Which will of course come back to us when the in the Gaza pullout in nineteen in two thousand and five, six, whatever, two thousand five I think it was. Um, but Yamit, I remember watching on TV the news while we were having dinner of the fighting going on there. The horror. The, yeah. Of yeah, yeah. Watching Israeli soldiers pulling Jews out of their homes. Homes, homes. But they did it. Four settlements in the Sinai, Yamid, as we said, is the biggest. And that, that set the precedent. Israel will withdraw, will uproot settlements for a clear and recognized peace um, with its neighbors. Um, I think that, that that is a major ramification. I think that, that, that anybody who says that, you know, Israel's a lying, like— you can't say Israel's I, I, lying I, I, about you know, that offer, yeah. nor can you say that it never works, that it won't work. Yeah. That our, Correct. you can't, it, it, Correct. when it's done, it works. Right. Now, when both sides do right. it, do it. You, you can know. underlearn lessons and you can overlearn lessons. Every situation right. is different. But in terms of precedent, this worked. And so many people who thought that Begin didn't go far enough, or many people who felt that Begin betrayed 
his principles. Went I mean, you can far. evaluate it went <laughs> too far. You can always disagree and evaluate whether you think the person did the right or wrong thing. But the precedence, the revolution, the, the major changes this makes in Israel's relationship to its neighbors uh, affects our daily life today. The fact yeah. that Israel, the fact that there's a buildup even from, from terrorist groups in the Sinai and the Israelis and the Egyptians cooperate to eliminate that security Correct. threat. That was also... The, the, the fact that you have Hamas, which makes trouble, and the Israelis and the Egyptians cooperate yeah. to, to tamp down the security threat coming out of Gaza. We take as... We, we forget that that's... Monumental. <laughs> yeah. In the historical context, that, that if, you told a, if you told somebody in 1965 that that was going to happen by, you know, 2005, that would seem crazy. Yeah. One hundred percent, and for us, it's normal. Yeah, so I think that that that's this normalization is is not maybe what the 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 vision of a of a end of days piece is, of you know, but it, it is a piece. And again, and I have friends, I have some some good friends at home who uh, one of the things running on our WhatsApp this week was, okay, when are we going for a trip down in the Sinai? We mm-hmm. need to like kick back and hang out because Sinai's gone in and like those right. words exactly, Sinai's gone in. Right. And that that wouldn't that was not the case, right? That would not be the case. Uh, well, I remember in the 70s because the, the actual transfer is like 82, 81, 82. 82 yeah. right. And I remember Jews running to the Sinai. We, we, we yeah. better visit it now. Because it, then there was lots and lots of... Just showing the map, visiting. the map that I grew up with of Israel as this enormous, differently shaped thing than the Israel right. that we're used to today because the Sinai mm-hmm. triples the size of the state of Israel. Yeah. And and that that perception as a person growing up, oh my gosh, the whole map just changed. But in the name of peace, it was worth it, was the voice of, you know, by, by the, the way, government. one of the big security arguments was we needed Sinai as a buffer zone. We had our, our right. air force would train over that, yeah, yeah. so that the no, I'm sonic this booms, idea that you need a buffer zone. It's not just a buffer. The military mm-hmm. used it. There were there was oil there. The right, fact no, that no, we that, hear sonic booms all the time over us is because we don't have the sign up. Right. That's not my point. My point is that that well, we say right. That's one of the big arguments now that we need. I'm not making argument either way, but when we talked about this, things can change, right? So in the conscience was we need the sonic because of buffer zone. We right. need Yehuda v'Shamron right. for a buffer zone. Right. When it works, things if you, can if change. If you don't have peace, right. you're right. If you do right. have peace, then what are you buffering? Exactly. So those – America I, I just doesn't – you know, United States doesn't need a buffer from Canada. Exactly. Or Mexico. Well, <laughs> they just need a wall. <laughs> let's not get into that. That is definitely a buffer. All right. I think we though done with ramifications that I yeah, can think I mean, of. Yeah. We, we'd be happy if you want to send us questions or more things to fill in. Uh, or ramifications that we haven't thought of. Yeah. New insights yeah. and new, and so at forty, at forty, yeah. I will just end with this one thing that I remember: Begin visiting uh, Manhattan, and I, in my memory, and, I, and I, I've looked around to verify this, and I can't find the incident. But I think it was the Israeli Day Parade after the parade down Fifth Avenue. Uh, we went to Central Park, and he spoke under this big bandstand shell. And I just remember that as a kid, American Jews hearing the prime minister of Israel speaking. And the only thing I remember him saying, because I was very young, I remember him saying, and the United States guarantees that they will protect our security. We Jews know from long, bitter experience, we trust guarantees from no one except one place. And he pointed up at the sky. A prime minister of Israel indicating that God guarantees the security of the state of Israel. 
he was whatever is positives and negatives a remarkable unique jewish figure right. and and the more you explore him in his career which really turns very dark after this right uh, daniel gordas has a book right Oh yeah. Reagan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. It, he's just a fascinating Israeli leader and a, like a once in a many generation kind of person, I think. All right. All right. Next week is Oslo. Oslo. Unless course. unless the Mashiach comes and we have to do a <sighs> a you know. I'm update. a Zionist. I believe I am a firm Zionist. <laughs> I believe that that the Jews are redeemed through their hard work. I'm a religious Zionist, so I believe that God has to. But I don't believe that it's gonna come by magic. So that's going to be another episode. Uh, that's a whole other conversation. Uh, thanks so much, Alan. Thanks. Thank you, Mike. And thanks. Uh, we're at Ben's recording studio. Thanks so much, Ben. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Uh, this is the part where I remind you that we are the JU Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast. And it's also the part where I ask you to subscribe, to rate and review us, and to share and recommend us in any way you can. Also, we'd love your feedback so we can respond to you on or off the podcast. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Bye.